Hola. Anthony from Australia, as some would call me, here to talk about Golgari Midrange in Wilds of Eldraine Standard. We have various standard events coming up for both Arena and for Tabletop Organized Play, and people have asked us about the Golgari deck, plus we had a really great response to Javier's deck guide for Rakdos Midrange in Pioneer, so I'm making this deck guide. Golgari Midrange was the deck of choice for me and Javier at the recent World Championship in Las Vegas, where I made top 4, and Javier also had a very solid constructed record. Javier and I have had a lot of experience with midrange decks over the years, and although obviously we still have quite a large range in terms of what we are happy to play, I mean, we played Tron at the last Pro Tour, I do think we have some particular expertise in this specific area, and that's why we played this deck. So, in terms of what to expect from the deck, <laughs> well, I would say Golgari Midrange is definitely one of the decks of all time. I know that, you know, usually it's the trend that when you do well with a deck that you proclaim that it is a really strong deck, you know, deck is cracked, whatever. But I don't think that's true for this deck. It's like it's just a consistently fine deck and that was very much our expectation going into the event that doesn't sound very attractive obviously so why play golgari well it's hard for it to be the best deck in any given field but it's also very very hard for it to be the worst or even particularly bad which is Actually, a fairly appealing spot for standard decks, usually. You really need to be familiar with whatever deck you play in standard, because matchups are complex. Um, specifically, they're dynamic. So you have to get good at playing different kinds of games within the same matchup, which makes it a more difficult task to fully understand a matchup. And there are quite a lot of different decks that are competitively relevant, since there's not that large of a gap between the best decks and the next best decks, so you have a lot of those complex matchups to get through. Plus, the games generally go long, which means both that you have a lot of decisions to make, and that you need to make those decisions at a reasonable pace in order to finish rounds on time. So, I would usually recommend just playing whatever you play most effectively within Standard, you know, within reason. So, if you play Golgari particularly well, or if you just enjoy playing this kind of grindy midrange deck, it's definitely good enough to be your contextually best choice for a tournament. So, I'm definitely not advocating for Golgari midrange as the best deck in the format, or anything like that, but hopefully we can help you be able to submit Golgari midrange while being able to pilot it comfortably and well, which is the most important thing in standard. For this deck guide, I'll start by talking about midrange decks in general, because I think that would be useful to go over before comprehensively covering the cards in the deck, you know, why they're there and how they all fit together, then make a brief note of the relevant tabletop play logistics for the deck, and round out with a quick overview of various key matchups. For reference, that's the kind of structure I'm hoping our future deck guides will follow, uh, and if you feel that you're happy with that, 
or you'd like to see more or less of some of the elements of the guide, let us know. Let's quickly define what a mid-range deck really is. I think that fully understanding this would be generally useful for discussing this deck and similar decks in a sensible way, and it's also helpful for informing how we play with the cards. I think that mid-range decks are conceptually not very well defined, or at least not very well understood by many players. If you asked a lot of players what a mid-range deck is, you will often get answers that aren't very specific or very practical. For example, saying that a mid-range deck tries to grind people out, which just makes it sound like a control deck, or that a mid-range deck likes to use a lot of 2 for ones or play all the best cards, which is not necessarily true, or that a mid-range deck tries to get a lot of value, which is a pretty nebulous concept, and with all of these answers, it's hard to do much with these ideas. A better answer to the question, what is a mid-range deck, would be that mid-range decks sit between aggro decks and control decks, and that is overall correct, but I think it doesn't quite get there as a functional definition, because it doesn't address how that translates into an actual plan. So, I would suggest thinking of mid-range decks as aiming to be able to play the role of either the aggressive deck or the controlling deck in any given game or matchup. Midrange decks are not quite simply slower than aggro and faster than control. They are trying to actively take on one of those roles in each game. And that implies flexibility is critical to midrange gameplay because you need to be able to adapt to different roles based on what your opponent's doing. Aggressive decks and controlling decks need to change the tools they use to execute their game plan. And midrange decks need to be able to adapt their entire game plan. You should be building and playing your midrange decks with this adaptability first and foremost in mind, rather than concentrating on other things like value or rate on cards. Now for the cards. I'll talk about why the cards are included, what they add to the deck, some tips and tricks for playing with them, and possible changes you can make to the deck, including alternative options. Uh, I'm going to assume that you know the rules text on all the cards, the basics of how they play, so if you're not completely familiar with it all, it might help to have Scryfall or a copy of the world's decklist handy. Uh, so I'm just going to go up the curve, I suppose, so we'll start with the two drops. How many two drops to play was a major point of contention for us. Uh, it's something that's fundamental to how we build the deck, and... It was very difficult, because it was very important, I suppose, but also not completely clear. There was a difficult tension. On one hand, they are generally important to your deck functioning. Uh, remember that we have to be able to be the aggressor to be able to play a good mid-range deck, and we need cheap threats for that, of course. And they improve our other cards, uh, especially cheap interaction, as they make those more punishing. Uh, for example, often our best curves involve starting with a 2-drop into another 2-drop plus either duress or cutdown, depending on which one is good in the matchup. On the other hand though, the 2-drops after Dread Knight are not very strong cards individually, so drawing too many of them is often problematic because they don't scale very well late game, despite having some relevant abilities there. The fact that they have these late game abilities at all is what makes them contenders to be included, 
as opposed to be ones that we're actually happy to have in our deck. We ended up settling on having seven two drops, but it could easily be a little more or a little less, depending on what you expect to face, or if we just weren't completely correct about it in the first place. Uh, you could play fewer if you play, expect lots of mid-range, or more if you expect lots of control and ramp decks. The best two drop, of course, the only uh, four of in our deck, uh, well, the only four spell in our deck, Mosswood Dread Knight, is the star of the show. It's arguably the most important new card that makes this deck viable at all, especially because it's arguably the best two drop in a format that lacks many good two drops. Uh, as we said, flexibility is key to mid-range plans, and Mosswood Dread Knight covers all of the angles as an attacker, defender, and card advantage spell. The main reason that Dread Knight really outperformed our initial expectations was that we underestimated its defensive value, but it's naturally even better in its other roles. You do have to actually cast Mosswood Dread Knight in all of those modes to achieve that potential. I see a lot of people defaulting to always casting the card drawing side first, and that is not necessarily correct, even though it often is. So be careful to think about what plan you have for the game in front of you, based on your hand and the matchup. Uh, of course, although the most important thing with the Dread Knight is that you match how you play it uh, to your game plan, uh, in terms of tips and tricks, uh, I would suggest that you don't miss that you can kill your Dread Knight with a removal spell such as Cutdown in response to an effect that would exile it. Uh, most often the Wandering Emperor's minus two ability. Uh, and in terms of logistics, I would recommend using a marker card so you can put your Dread Knight somewhere once it dies so that uh, you don't forget its trigger as easily. Next up, we have Bramble Familiar, Tenacious Underdog, and Misery Shadow which I'm going to all group together because they're all singletons that we play as generally weak-ish filler for the curve. They're all singletons because they're good in different places and they're not good in multiples. Uh, Bramble Familiar is the one that is by far the best early. It's really, really good on turn two, but drops off pretty steeply after that, then picks up again once the seven mana mode of fetch quest is relevant. Uh, Tenacious Underdog has... Some natural synergy with Blossoming Tortoise and Liliana, plus it's the best in the uh, most grinding games, but it has the drawback of being the one that's the most easily outclassed on the board. Misery Shadow is decent against midrange decks. For example, it gives you a chance to exile Denic or Dread Knight, which is huge, and it pressures Domain the best, thanks to its activated ability, letting you not overextend into Sunfall. But sometimes it's too risky a commitment, and it can be difficult to get value out of it if it's a game where you're spending all of your mana. You're going to board out these non-Dread Knight 2 drops out a lot, as you will become more reactive in many post-board games, since you can adapt your answers to be able to play that role more effectively. And you're going to keep all of them when you specifically need to be proactive, which is mainly against the Domain deck. It's worth noting that we did try builds with lots of Bramble Familiars specifically, trying to enable a secondary ramp plan between Blossoming Tortoise as another ramp enabler, and extra copies of Virtue of Persistence and Nyssa as ramp payoffs that weren't a full commitment to playing 7 drops in your deck, so we had a pseudo ramp plan. Uh, but unfortunately, having that pseudo ramp plan 
be good was somewhat predicated on it not being too costly. And it did end up being a lot more costly than we had expected uh, because it made us give up too much of that core flexibility. Specifically, the ramp plan plays quite poorly with playing a lot of one-for-one interaction and Liliana of the Veil, um, as those tend to make the game smaller and with the ramp deck you want to play high resource games. Still, it's a possible direction I would keep in mind for future iterations of the deck. Here I'll discuss a couple of options for the 2-drop slot that we seriously considered and could be good in different spots. The one that was the last for us to decide on was Tough Cookie. Uh, limited All-Star Tough Cookie. This one was a little more speculative, obviously, but after trying it, it was quite good against aggro and really outstanding against control and domain. The problem was, of course, that it was decidedly underwhelming in mid-range matchups. So it's good against decks trying to remove all of your creatures because it represents the most stats out of one card. And against sweepers specifically, it excels because with other food, uh, presumably from a restless cottage or another copy of Tough Cookie, it can play as a hasty attacker that threatens much more the following turn. So the specific example that came up was you can follow up your opponent's sunfall by playing Tough Cookie, animating the existing food, attacking for 4 haste damage, and then threatening to attack for 10 damage the following turn, which is a lot of power, a lot of pressure that comes out of a 2-drop. We honestly weren't sure if Tough Cookie was okay to play as a singleton, because it's so much stronger in multiples, uh, exactly because of that scenario. Javier didn't really like the sound of playing a singleton cookie, uh, but Nathan didn't see a reason uh, that he found compelling that we couldn't play a singleton cookie. So for now, I'd say that if you expect a lot of domain or fast aggro decks, that you can just replace all of the singleton filler two drops with tough cookies. Uh, but you can be punished for that if you play against other mid-range decks. So both Golgari and Esper. Uh, I would ask that you try not to let the hilarity of Tough Cookie influence your decisions in that regard, but I understand if that's too difficult a task. The other two drop that we tested um, and found to be... Uh, that, f- that we found had potential was Questing Druid. Uh, we tried splashing for it, obviously. Um, we weren't going to play it with only the green side. And it was quite impressive on power level, but it was ultimately very costly in a way that was counterproductive to the reasons to play the card. The mana becomes a lot worse, of course, because you can't play many copies of both Zeotaurus Proving Ground and Restless Cottage, and Restless Cottage is super important to the deck. Losing any copies cuts into the specific advantages that Questing Druid gives you in terms of your ability to play grindy games and pressure your opponents. So the fact that Questing Druid made us cut Restless Cottage uh, was made it kind of a self-defeating exercise. Uh, if in the future we were able to splash for Questing Druid without cutting Restless Cottages was Yentoro's Proving Ground, I could see there being a lot of potential in this card. Moving on to the 3-drops, those are a lot simpler because they're all broadly quite good. First off, we have Glissa Sunslayer, which is, of course, generally quite strong as Either your opponent has creatures and it's an extremely effective defender, but it's also very good against non-creature decks as it can easily trigger card drawing for you each turn. 
It's the premium three drop against Esper Midrange and Esper Legends, as they're a little light on interaction, and Esper Midrange has very valuable enchantments for you to destroy with Glissa. You could play a fourth copy if you expect a lot of white midrange decks, but they can obviously become clunky in multiples in general. Specifically when Glissa is defensively useful, extra copies rotting in your hand can prevent you from taking advantage of the time that she's buying you. The filler, in air quotes, 3-drop of the deck is Graveyard Trespasser. That's kind of what Graveyard Trespasser has done in all of the decks in which we've played it, which have been a lot of decks. It's never really exceptional, but it's always fine in a lot of different matchups. It's a little better in this deck than in previous decks because of Restless Cottage making it easy for you to flip Graveyard Trespasser. And it's the best one to play as a neutral option across matchups, but that means you can replace them if you have a strong read on the field leaning in some particular direction. The one that stands out because it was not played so much in general is Sentinel of Lost Law, and this one was quite impressive. We played it as a flexible filler card, but you could play more copies if you expected, in particular more mid-range decks, where its ability to generate a ton of value late game is particularly appealing. It happens to have particularly good sizing that lines up well against a lot of the format. For example, it trumps Mosswood Dread Knight and Graveyard Trespasser and Virtual Persistence in Mirrors. It's very good against a lot of aggressive decks being bigger than many of the ground attackers and some of the interaction. I think uh, as a body, it's not as bad as it would look to just play it without value on turn 3, although of course it is worse than the other options, which is why we didn't play as many as it's one that we would prefer to draw late. It is exceptional against uh, Virtues, of course, both the white and black opposing Virtues and Mosswood Dread Knights, where you can deny them the ability to keep uh, chaining those. And the odd part about this card is that it's very easy to underestimate its first ability. So when you read the card at first, it looks like that first ability is designed to let you reuse an adventure, for example, so you can... Uh, cast a Virtue of Persistence as Lockthwain Scorn, kill something, play Sentinel, return it, and recast the Lockthwain Scorn. And that is, of course, a good use for the card. But what it's the best at doing is preventing your opponent from using Exile Removal effectively. So if your Mosswood Dread Knight is exiled by the Wandering Emperor or Sunfall, which is very common because that's the best way to answer a Mosswood Dread Knight after all, otherwise it just comes back, then your Sentinel of Lost Law can return it. But other than shutting down your opponent's counterplay to cards like Mosswood Dread Knight, it can also uh, be enabled by your own cards. So, for example, you can exile a uh, Mosswood Dread Knight or Virtue of Persistence or Bramble Familiar that have gotten into your graveyard by being discarded to Liliana, milled by Blossoming Tortoise, or countered by Make Disappear, for example, and return it with Sentinel. So... Your enablers for that are Restless Cottage, Graveyard Trespasser, and if you play multiple copies of Sentinel, uh, the third mode on its triggered ability uh, all work to set up the Sentinel to return those to your hand. And that's pretty powerful. You can potentially get something like a 3-for-1 out of this card, and if you're very lucky, uh, effectively a 4-for-1, as each one of the modes on its abilities is potentially worth a card. We didn't play many because it is the worst 3-drop to play on turn 3 relative to the other ones, 
But again, if you expect to play a lot of long games, you could definitely play more copies of it. The one three drop that you do see in quite a few lists and that we had considered but decided not to play is Lord Skitter. And that one was, we decided, a little worse than Graveyard Trespasser as it is less useful defensively. Uh, Lord Skitter tends to only be good if you're attacking, of course, as the rats don't block. One very strange drawback with this card is that the rat tokens are not optional to put into play, which, you know, wouldn't seem like it's a problem, but was proving to be a liability against Domain and Control because of Sunfall. And we didn't think that would be something that mattered a lot, but it often causes Sunfall tokens to be large enough that we would actually die to them before re-establishing our board. The one spot in which Lord Skidder seemed like it was particularly appealing was the mirror match, because it makes Liliana of the Veil so much worse, and you don't mind building up a bunch of rats that can't attack until your opponent plays a Planeswalker, as those are so important. So if you expect a lot of specifically Golgari mirrors, you could play Lord Skidder, but I'm not really sure that it would be better than more copies of Sentinel of Lost Lore in that case. So I would probably recommend against playing the card. The four drops here are rather complex and will involve a little more deep diving than the other cards in the deck. Probably somewhat unexpectedly for many players, I think Shieldred actually requires some explanation. We were surprised to find in testing that Shieldred was noticeably underperforming for us in several matchups. And although we're still playing her, it's worth noting that she is a significantly worse card than she was in previous midrange decks. It just so happens that she's broad enough to keep playing, and in any case she certainly had some room to become a worse card and still be clearly of a competitive caliber. We have mentioned before on the podcast that Shieldred is a tricky card to evaluate, and seeing Shieldred decline so much is, I think, quite illuminative of that. So what happened? Basically, banning Fable of the Mirror Breaker and Reckoner Bankbuster had a big impact on how good Shieldred is. I'm not talking about the archetypes that Shieldred goes in becoming worse, because that's fairly self-evident, but Shieldred herself. That might not seem intuitively clear, but the reason is that Shieldred is good in a similar way to Murktide region in Modern, which might seem like a strange comparison at first. In theory, Murktide Regent is not that difficult to answer, but different cards are good against Murktide Regent, and the one-drops, Ragavan and Dragon's Rage Channeler, with which Murktide is usually paired, and so it becomes very easy for opponents to be stuck with answers too inefficient to handle Ragavan well, or answers too small for Murktide, and being able to present this kind of fork makes it hard for your opponents to react well. Fable and Bankbuster complement Shieldred in a very similar way, in that they are threats that are naturally good against the answers you would try to line up against Shieldred. It's important that they are threats, because it meant that you could build a proactive strategy around them that punishes your opponent for trying to handle Shieldred, whether that meant being stuck with too many copies of Go for the Throat in your hand against these value-building cards, or passing the turn to leave up Make Disappear, and being punished by your opponent just casting a wreck and a bankbuster. Mosswood Dread Knight gives you a little of that functionality, but clearly not to the same degree or level of consistency that those cards did, and now the premier threats 
in these mid-range decks include cards like Gliss's Sunslayer, so it's a lot harder to make the best Shieldred answers into awkward cards for your opponent. So Shieldred excels in classic mid-range decks when she is her own relatively self-contained plan, and when that plan doesn't have too much overlap with the other things you were doing. The easiest way for that to be the case is basically trying to replicate those previous conditions where Shieldred was a golden card, i.e. when you have other threats that demand different responses, whether those responses are in terms of cards or game plans, to the responses demanded by Shieldred. The closer Shieldred is to the other cards in your deck, and that does include other copies of Shieldred, the worse it is. So in games where you might credibly grind out your opponent with Planeswalkers, for example, you will get more value out of Shieldred and want to prioritize it accordingly, such as by delaying casting her in order to best protect her. And conversely, in games where you just want to beat your opponent down and apply pressure, the worst Shieldred will be, assuming you have deployed other cards that do that. I think all of this should not only inform you in terms of how you play the card, but also how you build decks, including it. Early on, we tried decks that really centered on Shieldred, and they were very bad decks. A popular thought during spoiler season was that, for example, Beseech the Mirror would let you consistently access Shieldred, but that turned out to not be appealing at all when we didn't even want to play four copies of Shieldred in the first place in our midrange decks, since trying to just slam Shieldred after Shieldred is an extremely exploitable plan even if it occasionally works. You should also be very careful in how you deploy Shieldred, and you want to look to be the one punishing your opponent with it by making other plays, including sometimes no play at all, if you can wait and create a better position for her later, when they are in good positions to punish her, rather than being the one taking an early tempo loss by jamming her too aggressively. In general, it's very, very important that we step back and examine why these good cards are good, and it's not enough to simply recognize that Shieldred is really good. We need to break down exactly why she's good so we know how to build the best decks with the card and play the card to the best of our ability. Shieldred does have a high enough power level that she's still a worthwhile inclusion for now, but not one that I would consider locked, and you definitely shouldn't just be jamming Shieldreds into your deck box or into the battlefield, and assuming that all will work out well. It's probably good enough for some wins, but, you know, we're not looking for some wins as competitive players. We're looking for as many wins as we can get, and that involves being thorough even with things that might seem to be obvious. Going back to wanting cards that work differently to Shieldred, that's where Blossoming Tortoise comes in. It's a threat that's a lot more acceptable to play into removal since it can generate value immediately. In particular, it's a threat that you can play into a sweeper since digging for a restless cottage or mistress foundry is the best way to continue applying pressure through a potential sunfall. When you play against decks with sunfall, that's how you should aim to use a tortoise. It should, ideally, be the last threat you commit to the board before the sunfall, and you can keep the other threats in your hand. Against other midrange decks, it enables you to go over the top of them not only by letting you reach enough mana to deploy Virtue of Persistence, or a full-price Nissa, but also because multiple cottage activations is a very fast clock and difficult to handle. Tortoise is, rather fittingly, a slow card. You know, it's a tortoise, and 
So it's weaker whenever you are under pressure and stronger the more interaction you and your opponent have. We did consider playing some lands to support the tortoise to avoid the obviously pretty awful scenario of its trigger whiffing, such as Field of Ruin and Riveteer's Overlook, but decided that these lands were a little too poor in their own right to be worth improving tortoise's trigger, and accepted that it would sometimes miss on lands. There are definitely cases in general where you have to accept some risks like this, even though they feel particularly bad when you do catch the short end of things. I don't think the Tortoise is a particularly powerful card. It's solid, but not particularly powerful. But I think it fits well in the deck because it both provides a new angle to the deck in being able to go over the top of opponents and still does contribute to pressuring opponents where that's an important part for you to play because it helps you apply pressure through Sunfall, which is otherwise the best card at bringing your offenses to a halt. Another 4-drop option that we tried very briefly and didn't play, but which I think now looks very promising in the new metagame, is Archfiend of the Dross. It naturally has a similar weakness to Shieldred in terms of its susceptibility to spot removal, but the specific thing I like so much about Archfiend of the Dross now is the emergence of the new build of the Soldier's deck and the confirmation of a strong presence of Esper Midrange decks. It's not actually particularly strange for Shieldred to become overwhelmed by opponents who can just build big board states that you can't attack through with Shieldred effectively, and they end up going too wide around you and knock you out in a couple of big attacks. Soldiers does that by amassing huge amounts of cardboard with Knight Errant of Eos and other card advantage creatures like Zephyr Sentinel rebuying resolute reinforcements or recruitment officer activations, and Esper Midrange can use Virtue of Loyalty to make its boards big enough to trump Shieldred while not worrying about taking damage from her in the process. Archfiend races those boards very convincingly, both by conventionally attacking as a huge flyer and, you know, maybe sometimes you get some incidental damage in because they can't uh, block some of your creatures, or by spending some of your cutdowns, or you can just deal them a huge amount of damage with Gix's Command or Path of Peril. I think Archfiend is the most similar to Shieldred, so that's the card I would replace if I decided to play Archfiends, which is something I'd be interested in doing if I expected a lot of soldiers and or white midrange decks. Archfiend is going to be worse than Shieldred against most other decks, uh, particularly Mono Red and Domain, where Shieldred punishing up the Beanstalk and Courier's Briefcase is pretty significant, but they're close enough that I'd highly recommend trying this out in light of where we might expect the metagame to go, though of course we didn't play enough with it for me to be completely confident in this. The other other 4-drop that we tried was Phyrexian Obliterator, which required a rework of the mana base, and was paired with Bushwhack. The reason to do that is that it gives you an excellent way to punish Domain, because Obliterator plus Bushwhack often wins the game on the spot if they tap out for a Traxxer. And in fact, the version that we had featuring this combo felt like it was actually a little favoured in the Domain matchup. Unfortunately, Obliterator had the issue where a mana base that supports its very taxing mana cost can't also support Blossoming Tortoise, and combining Obliterator and Shieldred led to the issue that I talked about before, which is that you end up with too many of a similar kind of threat punished by the same cards, in this case spot removal, so there wasn't really an acceptable combination of enough 4-drops that included Phyrexian Obliterator. 
I was surprised though that Bushwhack proved to be quite a solid card though, and I could see playing that in various green decks, including this one, as something like a utility land if that was an effect that we needed. Here I'll talk a little about the sideboard. Most of it is about letting you adjust your interaction to fit your opponents better. You probably won't need much explanation as to when cards like Duress or Go for the Throat are good or bad, and when to switch these around, so I'll focus on the other cards. Path of Peril is mostly intended to play similarly to Gix's Command, and you are usually trying to just use it as a wall breaker, so you want to have both players building up creatures, and then drop one of these as an asymmetrical sweeper that lets you end the game quickly from there. The main exception is Mono Red, where you really want to cut off their pressure, because trying to establish creatures first is easily punished by the removal spells such as Witchstalker Frenzy, and they have a harder time closing out the game without the early damage. Phyrexian Arena was an absolute all-star for both me and Javier in our event, and it honestly surprised both us and apparently several of our opponents at how effective it was. This is the best card at enabling you to take a controlling role, and it being cheap means that it is much easier to get it into play as a win condition than the more expensive Planeswalkers. The damage is too punishing against Mono Red, so you don't want it there, but surprisingly you actually want Phyrexian Arena against other aggro decks. One way to frame it is that in your postboard games, where presumably most or all of the spells in your deck are relevant, a lot of those cards are going to save you a lot more than one life. Arena is obviously not only good at letting you play a control plan against aggro, it naturally excels as it, at its intuitive use as a grindy card, which lets you outgrind potentially just about any deck, whether that's mirror matches, control, domain, enchantments, whatever. Arena is an outstanding card in postboard games in particular because of the way that the average value of a card in your deck tends to drastically improve in quality after sideboarding. So it's one of those cards you will happily sideboard in for almost every matchup, but still not want to main deck it. It's worth noting that for most standard formats, a lot of matchups will feature cards like this that are much better in postboard games than pre-board games, which happens because matchups tend to play out differently postboard relatively often. So this scenario where you bring in something all the time and don't make it naked isn't unusual. Obstinate Bailoth has some unusual overlap in that it is very good against aggressive decks and is quite good in the mirror. We felt that playing one copy had a high value in mirrors, as it includes an unpredictable risk for both Liliana of the Veil and Graveyard Trespasser. Remembering, you can put in Bailoth off Trespasser's War Trigger, and because you can consequently put Bailoth into play at instant speed, that makes attacking or planning to protect Planeswalkers a lot trickier for your opponent if they have a Trespasser in play. Any additional copies you play would probably be just for aggro, as extra copies don't add too much in the mirror. Rankle's Prank is pretty much exactly against Domain. I suspect you don't want it against Control decks because of the way the games play out with a lot of resources, though I could see changing my mind about that, and it might have some applications against slower creature decks, but I think your own creatures are defensively strong enough there that this card would play too awkwardly with them. Prank is powerful against Domain for the same reasons as Liliana. Uh, they need a lot of resources to function, and even if you are technically incurring card disadvantage most of the time when you use the Prank, it's much more damaging for them than it is for you, and Prank gives you some coverage similar to Liliana. After all, they are somewhat similar cards, where you don't want to play too many dedicated removal spells, but still need to get rid of errant topiary stompers and archangels of wrath. 
Okay, well, those were the actual cards in the deck. Here I'll make a brief note of the logistics of playing the deck with actual cards. For this particular deck, there's not too much to say, but I think it would be good to have this kind of note in deck guides more often, given that tabletop play is more complex than it used to be, and a lot of people mainly prepare online for tabletop events. Golgari Midrange is logistically not very taxing. You will play a lot of long grinding games, as with almost any standard deck, and thus you do need to be careful about your pace of play, but at least you don't have to manage many different kinds of tokens. For reference, the tokens that I do recommend that you have for playing this deck in paper, you'll need an on an adventure marker card, another marker you can use as a zone for Mosswood Dread Knights in your graveyard that can be cast for ease of tracking, a day-night marker card, a food token, tokens you can use for Nissa and Ashiok, and something you can put on top of your library for Virtue of Persistence and Phyrexian Arena upkeep triggers. You might also need some more tokens for any cards you've added, such as Rats for Lord Skitter or Mites for Murex. Alright, finally I'll get to quickly covering the major matchups in Standard, such as how to sideboard in each of them and what your plan should roughly be. Uh, these matchups are all obviously quite deep, and I'm not going to be able to go into them in depth, but hopefully this gives you an idea of what you should be trying to do. Okay, first up we have Domain. So here you don't want Cut Down, Gix's Command, Virtue of Persistence, or Graveyard Trespasser, and you want to bring in Duress, Terra Sunder, Phyrexian Arena, Rankle's Prank, and Nyssa. You need to generally pressure your opponent, plus use just enough disruption to make them stumble, or capitalize on their natural stumbles, and have your threats finish them before they recover. You usually want to try to deny setup cards more aggressively than answers with your discard spells, with the exception of Sunfall. Uh, sometimes you do just run away with the game by taking all of their cards with an unchecked Liliana, but that's quite difficult and involves you having particularly good draws with lots and lots of discard spells. Next up we have Mono Red, and there you want to cut your two drops, Blossoming Tortoise, Nyssa, and Terra Sunder. And you want to add your removal spells, Obstinate Bailoff, and Gix's Command. Duress is fine here. You don't want a lot of them, but you can keep the ones you have main deck, mostly because they protect Shieldred, and sometimes you can really disrupt their curve by taking Kumano, faces uh, Kakazan, for example. The rest is all pretty intuitive since this is a classic simply aiming to not die sort of game, and Ha then you have your individually more powerful cards take over. Try to make plays that don't let them use the removal to push damage. That will usually involve prioritizing spending removal spells rather than putting blockers into play, simply because your opponent is really good at interacting with blockers, but not spot removal. That even applies to things like Shieldred, which seem like they would just win the game if unchecked, because they are very good at checking Shieldred post-board especially. Watch out for your opponent trying to juke you with non-creature threats, and consider bringing in more copies of Duress if that's something they are leaning into. In the Golgari midrange mirror, you want to get rid of Cutdown, Kix's Command, Terra Sunder, Misery Shadow, Bramble Familiar, and Tenacious Underdog, and you want to add Phyrexian Arenas, Ashiok, Nyssa, Obstinate Bailoff, Go for the Threat, and a Duress, although you can of course be a little flexible with the interactive spells. The best cards in the matchup by quite a large margin are Mosswood Dread Knight and the Planeswalkers, and the main way you can try to fight these is to try to fight for the board fairly aggressively, 
although you do need to be careful not to expend critical answers. If you spend too many answers like go for the throat fighting for the board, you can just randomly get punked out by a shieldred. So you want to be careful of that and think about the plays your opponent is making to see how likely it is that they might have a shieldred lurking around. The reason that being ahead of board makes Dread Knight worse is that it makes it harder for them to play it flexibly. If you're putting them under too much pressure, it's difficult for them to draw a card with it as well. So you are able to gain card advantage in a way uh, by having board advantage. And with Planeswalkers, it's, that's much more self-explanatory as well. Uh, of course, if you can, if you're in a if you're in a position to just remove the Phyrexian Horror and just attack down Nissa, that's a huge deal. When it comes to Nissa, don't forget that dealing it damage without killing it is actually often quite effective as well, because it shrinks the tokens that she can produce. There's a lot of different ways that the mirror can play out. They can be very grindy. They can be full of pressure. They can revolve around specific cards. And it's difficult to have a general rule of thumb for this matchup, given that it can play out in a few different ways. And you are probably just going to have to play that specific matchup a few times. Specifically with a mind to the ways in which the game can develop based on your opening hands. Uh, recognizing that that can change based on the cards you've drawn later in the game. And having in mind that some lists are going to be leaning towards uh, one way or the other. So, for example, lists with Lost Skitter are probably looking to be a little more aggressive, and lists with more Planeswalkers might be looking to be a bit grindier. Against maybe the most popular deck in the format, Esper Midrange, you want to cut Virtual Persistence, the two drops, and Sentinel of Lost Law, and you want to add Path of Peril, Gix's Command, Phyrexian Arena, and the Planeswalkers. Your best threats, by a fairly large margin, are Glissa Sunslayer and Nissa. And your best answers are, of course, Path of Peril and Gix's Command, bearing in mind, as that we've as we've talked about, uh, that you want to set them up as asymmetrical sweepers. One really common trap to fall into playing against Esper Midrange is to overrate spot removal. It's not quite as good as it looks. They do have key cards, like Rafine and Shieldred, that you really have to remove. But outside those cards, spot removal's not particularly good against how grindy their strategy is able to be. So be careful not to overvalue removal spells when, for example, you're mulliganing, sideboarding, discarding to Liliana, and so on. The matchup where you do want a lot of spot removal, and probably why this is so easy to mix up, is Esper Legends. There you want to cut Duress, Liliana, Nyssa, Shadow, and Underdog, so this time you're keeping Bramble Familiar instead of cutting all the two drops, and you want to add Cut Down, Go for the Throat, Tear Asunder, Phyrexian Arena, Geeks's Command, Path of Peril, and another Phyrexian Arena over a Graveyard Trespasser on the play, or if they have sideboarded in a lot of removal. Here, you're just looking to focus on containing the key threats like Rafine. Uh, you want to avoid running Dread Whispers, the card drawing mode on Muscle Dread Knight, into Fairy Mastermind, and this is a matchup where you want to change plans more depending on whether you're on the play or draw. You want to be more aggressive on the play as your deck doesn't defend very well, and you are naturally forced to be a little more defensive on the draw as the deck is very strong proactively there. Against Control X, it's pretty straightforward. You just want to cut your removal spells and add duress and non-creature threats. 
And this is a very classic matchup, the mid-range matchup versus the control matchup. And it's one that's good for you, since it's a lot easier for them to be caught with the wrong answers. Uh, one of the easiest things to do incorrectly here is to spend your duresses too aggressively. You usually want to be careful with those and save them so you know exactly which answers to take uh, in order to stick something of value. You want to give them the most chances as well to draw their counter spells before you duress them and stick your Frexen Arena, for example, which is a particularly good one to do because it's cheaper. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a quick overview of Golgari Midrange. If you have any questions, hopefully you know where to contact us through the Competitive Magic with the Carney social media channels. Good luck in any events that you have on, and hopefully you have as much playing standard as we did.